There's only one nation, Raider Nation. You're listening to Silver and Black tonight on the Mightier 1090. Welcome back. It's Friday night. That means it's time to talk Las Vegas Raiders football. Welcome back to Southern California's only all Raiders talk show. That is Silver and Black tonight. I am Scott Cobranson, joined by my co-host, Mo Moten. Mo, for the second time in a month, we have to come on the show and talk about unpleasantries. We have to talk about something, in this case, that's very tragic. Of course, we had the John Gruden resignation, the controversy a few weeks ago. Uh, We want to talk about football, but unfortunately, tonight we talk about, of course, this is the devastating news uh, about Henry Ruggs, his uh, alleged drunk driving accident, 156 miles an hour, runs into the back of a 23-year-old Tina Tintor, want to mention her name and, of course, uh, give our condolences to her family, 23-year-old young woman just at the beginning of her life. Uh, but Ruggs, apparently drunk driving, 156 down what is a 45-mile-an-hour road in Las Vegas, one I've traveled hundreds of times, and uh, this accident was horrific. Henry Ruggs is now in jail. His career in the NFL is over, and he's going to uh, face charges, uh, which include uh, a DUI with, uh, with death. Uh, in the sentence mode that could go from anywhere from two up to 20 years. And we're going to have uh, um, a conversation about this now, Mo, not because we want to talk about it, but, um, you know, there's there's not a lot of words you can say when something like this happens. Uh, but the Henry Ruggs incident is just another challenge for this Raiders team, but off the field with a young man whose life and everyone around him now is, is impacted forever. Uh, it's just hard to think through it, Mo, when you have somebody with so much life ahead of them uh, killed in an accident because of the carelessness of Henry Ruggs. Yeah, first of all, I just want to say prayers and thoughts, thoughts and prayers to Tina Tintor's family. Uh, that's first and foremost. Uh, we have to put that in front of this conversation before we talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I just want to go through is uh, you're going to hear a lot of us saying uh, reportedly and allegedly because this is still ongoing with Henry Ruggs. There's still some legal proceedings to go, so just be mindful of that. But um, two things I want to highlight. Uh, accountability, accountability, and compassion. And I think accountability goes to Henry Ruggs. Uh, he has to now uh, face whatever consequences comes from his reckless uh, decision out there in Las Vegas. I uh, believe, you know, compassion with uh, just the victims of of this fatal accident. And I think Derek Carr and Rich Basaccia showed that or exhibited that in press conference Wednesday when he spoke to reporters for the first time since the accident. Uh, you know, you can love a, a person, but understand that they do have to pay the consequences for their actions. I think people need to understand that because they're, you know, social media, there are people saying, well, you know, you don't want to demonize rugs. And I understand that. But again, you can, let me rephrase it this way. In football, when you have a locker room players, a lot of them say this is a family, mm-hmm. you know, we're brothers, right? So you're going to hear compassion for rugs from Derek Carr and some of the players they are going to say, yeah, we love rugs. But I'm sure they understand in their minds that yes, he does have to pay the consequences. Yeah, and, and as I said, and, and really quick though, just with Tina Tintor's family and, and victims, show compassion. That's first right. and for, foremost. That before we argue about who's to blame and why is this happening with young guys in Las Vegas or any other place in the world, 
show compassion for the family who's 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 grieving right now. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Mo, because that's where I wanted to start as well. Uh, because that that is important, and I think. Derek Carr has showed a level of leadership that no one has ever questioned that, that this is a good man and that he is a good leader uh, on the field and off the field and a, and a good human being. Um, and he's faced some criticism after what he said in the press conference back on Wednesday, which we'll get into uh, as well. And, and, and that's where I'm starting because, you know, we don't, we all have different beliefs. We have faith beliefs. Uh, you know, I, I am a Christian. And so when Derek Carr says, listen, Henry Ruggs needs someone to love him right now. And, and to your point, Tina Tintor's family, there's no doubt when you're the victim of something like this, then clearly th- th- she was innocent person driving home with her dog. Okay. She was doing the speed limit. She was just doing what, what all of us would do. I mean, she could have been my son. She could have been your relative. She could have been your friend from work. She could have been anybody. And, and unfortunately because of these alleged actions, uh, she's no longer with us. But at the same time, um, you know, Henry Ruggs has a daughter, a young daughter. He has a mother. He has a family, too. And they are also victims in this, too. And that's where I think Derek Carr's compassion. When he said someone needs to love Henry Ruggs, that was not in any way um, not thinking of the, the victim, the innocent victim and bystander in this. And that's Tina Tintor. But at the same time, it also means, like you said, Mo, it's family, right? And so we've all had people in our family, whatever you want to call them, that have gotten in trouble or have had a tough go with substance abuse or whatever it may be. And they make bad choices, right? We, we, we all deal with that as human beings. And that does not mean that you don't love them. That does not mean that you're not there to help them and eventually pay back their debt to society and the debt to their victims, if it's a crime, whatever it may be. And so I think that so many of these people that I see, and I had to, I, and I was, I, I think I, I texted you yesterday. I got to get off Twitter because I just yeah, could not, <laughs> I, I could not handle people's callousness. And that's where I want to start with this too, is that callousness. And that's where the religious piece came with me. And we're not here to talk about religion, but what I'm here to talk about is that compassion piece. And I'm not saying that you want to go and say, oh, I feel so sorry for Henry Ruggs. I'm not saying that because I know a lot of people are angry, especially those of us who have family who were killed in accidents uh, because of either drunk drivers or were killed in accidents because of reckless driving like my sister-in-law was. Okay. So I I understand it because my wife deals with it every day of her life and and it never goes away. So I understand that side of it but you have to look at the totality of the humanity here so so the argument this and that's why i call this a tragedy because it's a tragedy for everyone involved including henry ruggs's families and though and his teammates and those that that love him and for tina tintor's family and her life snuffed out way too early uh and she had dreams and aspirations that she'll never realize and so to me it just gets into a societal issue here that we see amplified sometimes in sports, Mo, where people don't have compassion. A guy gets hurt in a game. A guy gets traded and suddenly he's 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 Satan himself because he's now on another team. This stuff has got to stop. We have to look at what's going on. We have to address real issues and we can't just go to the guttural hate and anger over something without having that compassion. Right. I could see it from both sides because I'm not right. I'm not going to sit here and wave my finger at Henry Ruggs. I'm sure he knows he did wrong and he made a bad he made a terrible, awful decision, probably going to be the worst decision of his life. But the compassion part for me comes in with, you know, I didn't talk about this on Twitter, but there's a reason I was a little more vocal about this issue than a lot of others. Uh, my dad was actually killed in a car accident <laughs> and it was a reckless situation. It wasn't a drunk driving. It was a little different. But there was a reckless individual 
and my my dad perished in that in that fatal car accident. So I understand what Tina Tintor's family is going through when they get a phone call saying, "Yeah, your family member, you know, is no longer with us because of a reckless driver incident." So I get it. I understand what they're going through. Different situation again for me, but as far as losing a, a loved one, right. I understand that. But on the other side, I also understand that Henry Ruggs has a family. He has people that care about him, and he has people that aren't just going to toss him aside because he made a reckless, awful mistake. No, and 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 you know because you went through it too, and that is you're everyone here is damaged, and and it's not you know because someone was the the person responsible for this decision that led to the loss of life. Um, you know, they impacted everyone around them too. So it's not, and, and themselves, right? So there's, there's so much wrapped up in a situation like this. And I don't, un, I, I understand some people having to progress to a point. One of the hardest things to do in life, Mo, and you and I know this, I mean, this goes with daily stuff. Sometimes even when you're at work, forgiveness is a tough thing. And you know what? Some people, it takes years, especially with a situation like this. There may, may never be forgiveness for some people. And I understand that, right? I'm not here to tell people what their emotions should be. At the same time, it's just you, you look at the situation. Uh, and, and I think the, 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 the thing that bothered me most, Mo, and I know I saw you also comment on this, is this idea that the person and the individual is not responsible for their actions somehow, that there was some extenuating circumstance that made them or precipitated them making these poor choices. Now, yes, if you consume alcohol, you do drugs. Uh, yes, sometimes decisions, you don't make the better decisions because you're not there a hundred percent. But at the same time, um, I saw a lot of things about Las Vegas. I saw a national writer and I'll say it's Michael Silver. He said he did four paragraphs on why Las Vegas might be part of the issue, including uh, an old quote that he had from somebody in 2020 about coaches and the Raiders being concerned with the team there in Las Vegas and how, how they were going to keep the guys in line and all that kind of stuff, which I think is absolute BS. Because let me tell you, I can go through and give you dozens upon dozens of drunk driving accidents, of other sorts of domestic, all kinds of things with substance abuse as well uh, from not only NFL players, but professional athletes in general. And then you can go into the college ranks that happen everywhere. In fact, Las Vegas, they've had a lot of fatalities on the roadways in Las Vegas the past year. I think it's up to like 300, which is a new record for the state. Not all of those were, were drunk driving. Some of them were pedestrian. But Mo, it's 33rd in the nation in drunk driving. So the idea that because gambling is legal and because most of you who've never visited Las Vegas, or if you have, you've only seen the hotels, think that Las Vegas is nothing but people drinking, doing drugs, and finding prostitutes, it's not that way. And you can get in trouble. I, I've, I've had more wild, crazy nights when I was younger in New York City than I've ever had <laughs> in Las Vegas or in New Orleans, same, same thing. And so this idea that somehow because the Raiders are in Las Vegas, Henry Ruggs made this decision. Yeah, I just want to – it's quite simple for me. I just want to point to two individuals in the Raiders locker room, Max Crosby and Darren Waller. Mm -hmm. Crosby has dealt with alcoholism. Waller has dealt with uh, substance abuse. Both of them also had the same access to s situations as, as Ruggs does. There, there's temptation around them just as, as what Ruggs was. So it comes down to the individual and the choices they make. Max Crosby and Darren Waller, of course, have made the choice to turn their lives around and 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 walk a straight line. Now, I'm not saying Rux has an issue, has a perpetual issue like they did, but my point is it comes down to the individual and the decisions they make, the accountability, and that's what we were talking about. It's nothing to do with the location. As you said, you can get drunk and 
and get behind the wheel in any state. And just looking at the statistics, the top of the top 10 uh, states that have the highest DUI rates, they're mostly in the Midwest and the mountain regions because a lot of those areas have open roads and there's a lack of alternative means of transportation. Mm-hmm. In Las Vegas, I'm sure there are plenty of means of getting a Lyft and Uber or all types of things NFL players have access to so they, they don't get behind the wheel drinking and driving. Yeah. And, and again, this you, we could go, we could do a 12 hour show on personal responsibility and the lack thereof in society today, right? Which is this idea that you're not responsible for your action, that there's always a victimhood mentality when it comes to even something like this. Well, geez, poor, you know, if, if the bars weren't open so late, maybe he wouldn't have, you can't get into the what ifs because he made the choice, right? He made the choice and allegedly he was drunk when he drove. And not only that, but he's driving 156 miles an hour per reports from, from the media and from the, the police department in Las Vegas. And so that alone, even if you took out alcohol and the loaded gun in his car, uh, and if he's driving 156 miles per hour on a side street in Las Vegas, that alone is a decision bad enough. Uh, and so, so the idea that, that somehow you, you look at that and I see other people too, most saying, well, Hey, he's a young guy. He made a mistake. Well, (laughs) We've all made mistakes. I made some really big doozies myself. None of them involved drinking 156 miles per hour and an accent like this. So, so you can't defend it. You can be compassionate and understand that the man, the, the, the young man made the worst choice that he will ever make. Um, but at the same time, you also have to understand that no one is to blame, but Henry Ruggs. Right. And I just want to say also, you you know, I believe you mentioned it earlier. You can't tell a person how to feel because different people have different experiences Correct. in life. There are some people who dealt with drunk driving incidents, uh, others who may be connected to Henry Ruggs. So different people are going to feel different things. I think Derek Carr summed it up. He said he, he had a bunch of emotions. And, and I did, too, when I read the story. I didn't I, I, I didn't want to believe it. I was kind of in a state of numbness. I think I tweeted that. I just I just didn't feel anything because I'm thinking about my situation, again, which is different. Cause I don't want to make this about me. But I can understand, again, I can understand the victims of this, Tina Tintor's mm-hmm. family. And then Ruggs and his family, He, as you mentioned, he has a daughter. He was in the car with his girlfriend, his mom, his parents. What what do they think? You know, and, and it goes beyond football and just about people. I, I think just focusing on the person. Yeah, no. And that's why we're spending time on this at the top of the show. And we're going to talk about football coming up as well, clearly. But I think that's what's important here is is that. And and Mo, you're right. It's not about you. It's not about other people's experiences. But yet you've been through something similar. So you understand uh, all sides of it. And I think that's important. And there's a lot of people, like I said, the callousness of how they respond to things, mostly because they're behind a keyboard and they don't have to deal with the realities of looking somebody in the face who just lost somebody or lost a loved one who made who made a poor decision. So so from that perspective, it's you got to keep it in mind that some of these people just are reacting and they don't. But your point about processing, I mean, I was the same thing. Remember, we cover the team. You and I have a very similar um, background. We have a very similar point of view on how we cover the Raiders. We try to be as objective. We're not fans when we cover them and we're not haters. We're not out to make them look bad. We're not out and don't think our job is to make them look good. At the same time, Henry Ruggs is a kid that I've always liked. If you go back and you remember when we were doing the old show and you would come on as a guest, um, I was there. I wanted Henry Ruggs. I wrote two articles about him coming up to the draft. I love that kid. I really did. I loved his demeanor. I loved his story. I loved his talent. And that's the point I made when I wrote after this, too, was this is also a good example of why we can respect and appreciate 
professional athletes and other celebrities for what they do and how they entertain us and the talent that they have that we may not have. But one thing we cannot do, and I think we do too much now in society, is we put these men and women on pedestals and almost make them gods. And the reality is they're not. They're fallible and they make horrible, horrible decisions sometimes. And that's what I had to do. It took me a while too. I was numb because Henry Ruggs, like I said, I have an affinity for the kid. I like him. I I really thought he was going to be a good NFL player. And so for me, it was disappointment. It was anger. It was because of my own situation with my wife's sister being killed in the car accident. So, so I understand all those emotions you're talking about, Mo. And I think a lot of people took to social media to express them as they felt them, which probably is not the best thing to do, by the way. Uh, but it's it's something that I think Raider Nation is still pondering and they're still trying to process uh, because of the way it happened and because of uh, who it was. Yeah. And just to broaden this a bit, I was I wrote I published an article today and I had to describe each NFL team with one word. Mm-hmm. And initially the word for the Raiders was captivating because of what they'd gone through with John Gruden and they're still five and two. And after this incident, this accident happened, I changed it to turbulent. Mm. And it's because I couldn't highlight the the positives of the, of the season because you can see on Derek Carr's face, you can see with Rich Passaccia, there's just a gloom around, around the organization right now. And I know you can't blame the whole Raiders organization for what one individual did. Yep. But even the fans, you, I've been communicating with a lot of the fans, interacting with them on Twitter, and they're saying, wow, I, I can't even focus on their record right now because this, this, doesn't, this doesn't make me feel good. Put in my stomach, I just feel sick, and I, and I feel the same way. Yeah. No, and, and I understand that, and I, and I don't disagree with you. And I, I, I think back to all the things. You go back to the offseason. You go back to Mark Bedain leaving. You go back to the turmoil with the reported financial irregularities, which now Mark Davis at the owner's meeting sort of said, yeah, I fired Mark Bedain because it was his watch. And, 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 and all of that. So you have that organizational structure. Then you have change in leadership. Then you have the Gruden thing. And then now you have the rugs thing. I agree with you, man. And that's the thing. You could see it in Derek Carr's face and how it's going to impact the football. Like you said, the loss of Tina Tintor, the loss that the Ruggs family and Henry Ruggs now have because of his decision uh, and how it's going to impact their lives, including his child, is, is first and foremost above football. But when you look at this Raiders team and you start to think of what they've been through, man, it's it's incredible. If, the, if they can perform, because anybody, I don't care what your profession is, if you had to go through this and had all of these challenges with loss and turmoil, um, it would be very difficult to keep your focus. So we'll have to see if they're able to do that, especially as they head into uh, New York and New Jersey, that is, uh, into MetLife Stadium. Really quick, Scott, and yeah. this is this is a twofold issue. This is why this is so much different than the Gruden resignation. Some uh, Gruden had some emails. He resigned. It was over. Right. In this situation, you have the loss of a human life, and the Raiders lose a brother in their locker room. Mm-hmm. So this is a twofold situation having to do with general life, and it's it's not something that's just going to go away like a, a resignation. This is something that is permanent because a person again lost their life, and and a person another person just ruined his career and and maybe ruined his life as well yeah and that's the thing and and again it goes to families you know all these guys get close especially those that have kids right their kids play together Mm -hmm. they get to know each other there's a deepness there that uh, fans don't understand Um, and and that's that's why it is different you're absolutely right 
All right. Well, you know, we'll we'll continue to talk about this as we get more information. But again, our our thoughts and prayers go out to the Tintor family in Las Vegas uh, for the loss of of their daughter uh, and friend as well. So uh, we'll don't we won't forget that, and we'll continue to talk about that and keep you up to date on what's happening with the Henry Rugg situation, which I would imagine we won't know much for quite a while. But anyway, Mo, we're going to switch to football. And to do that, we're going to bring on a good friend of yours and someone who knows the New York Giants really well. And that is Patricia Trena from GiantsCountry.com. She's also the host of the Locked on Giants podcast. Patricia is going to come on after the break. And we're going to talk about this matchup on Sunday as the Raiders do their best to get on the field. They're playing a pretty bad team, I guess you could call them, <laughs> two and six. So five and two going into me, two and six. And we're going to get uh, an impression there from Patricia coming up after the break. You're with Mo Moten and Scott Colbrance. And this is Silver and Black tonight only here on the Mightier 1090. Now, back to Scott and Mo on Silver and Black tonight on the Mightier 1090 AM. All right, welcome back to Silver and Black tonight here on SoCal Sports Talk. That, of course, is the 50,000-watt powerhouse. That is the Mightier 1090. Scott Cobrans and Mo Moten with you on Silver and Black tonight. And now we turn our focus to the Raiders' opponent this weekend out at MedLife Stadium. That, of course, is the 2-6 and six New York Giants. To talk about the Giants, we welcome in Patricia Trena of GiantsCountry.com, also the host of the Locked on Giants podcast. You can follow her at Patricia underscore Trena, T-R-A-I-N-A. Patricia, thanks for being with us here and talking to Southern California about the Giants as they uh, get set to face the Raiders. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to talk to you guys. All right, so let's start with this team, 2-6, and six. Where is this team at? I know I've, I've read some of your work and, and heard you on some other shows talk about the injuries that have, have, have really befallen this team and what's happened with them. But when you look at the Giants organization overall, from the roster to the coaches to the front office with Dave Gettleman, uh, come, where is this team at in 2021 and what are things looking like for the future? Yeah, so uh, the injuries, you know, look, every team has injuries, so I'm not using it as an excuse. I want to make that clear. But that said, because guys have been in and out of the lineup, we haven't really seen what this team, I think, was meant to be. Um, It's like a different lineup every week, and there's been no continuity, no consistency. So it's been really difficult, I think, in some spots to say, okay, this this is how you would define the Giants. So that said, I think there were also times when the Giants they just they fell short they played down to their level of competition as opposed to playing above the level and um, especially early on in the season when they could have won I think two of the first three games and um, you know just recently the the defense started to turn and play better Uh, the offense is still struggling again because of the in and out of the you know with the different guys being injured but it's really been an enigma. Let's, I think it's safe to say that given the talent they assembled in the off season and how that roster had so much promise, um, it hasn't delivered. And it's, and it's been, you know, you can blame some of that on the coaching. You can blame some of that on the injuries. You can blame some of that on the players not executing. So, <coughs> excuse me, it's just been kind of weird. 
Well, we're jumping in here. Um, now, Saquon Barkley has a history of injuries, and I felt like what the Giants did in the offseason with, the, with their wide receiving core, adding a signing Kenny Galladay and drafting Kadarius Tony, I felt like they could sustain a uh, high-level performance on offense, even if Saquon Barkley experiences more injuries. And he has. He has a sprained ankle. He's missed multiple games. How much of this do you say is injuries versus the play calling? I know maybe you don't want to criticize Jason Garrett, but does he bear some of the blame for why this offense is underperforming despite the injuries? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I have no problem criticizing Jason Garrett, and I like him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some of the – you know, you look at some of the things, you know, they signed Kyle Rudolph of Campbell to be a red zone threat, and the guy doesn't get his first real touchdown in the red zone until this past week. Go figure that one out, okay? Mm-hmm. There were times when, when, when uh, Rudolph didn't get any targets in the red zone, which just totally blew my mind. They were, they're, they're still asking Evan Ingram to be a blocker, which is not something he does very well. And some of the play calling inside the red zone has just been atrocious. So, yes, they are missing guys. I get it. But some of the things they've been asking, I question whether or not they're really the best fit for, for some of the players and what they're asking them to do. Interesting. Uh, Patricia Trena from Giants Country and the Locked On Giants podcast is our guest. And Patricia, you talked about coaching. Of course, Jason Garrett has been uh, the topic of conversation in the area and all the Giants stuff that I've been reading, uh, not very friendly to the job that he has been doing. Uh, But Joe Judge is the head coach and the coaching staff. We saw, of course, this past week with the loss to the Chiefs, a game they really should have won, uh, blame some issues on communications around a timeout on headphones. Um, How is that staff to get? Is that staff where it needs to be to outside of Jason Garrett do you feel like they have the right people in place to get the job done I think they have a good coaching staff I, I mm-hmm. have no problem with the, with the staff in general what I question though is and and you know in the beginning I thought okay I saw I saw why he did it but I just wonder if they have too many voices mm-hmm. I think Joe Judge has like if not the biggest staff it might be the second biggest staff in the NFL behind what Bruce Arians has down in Tampa Bay. And I I kind of understand what Joe was going for in terms of breaking up some of the, you know, the responsibilities and making sure that the details were, were addressed as thoroughly. But in retrospect, now I just wonder if there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, I don't know the full scope of the dynamics of how that staff works. I have a rough idea, but not the, the intimate details, but, I do know sometimes if you have too many people sitting in the room around the table, you're bound to get different opinions. And then what do you do if you're deadlocked, you know? And Joe, remember, is still a new head coach, relatively new head coach. So it's not like he's got, you know, 20 years experience or, or the experience of a Bruce Arians who's been there, done that, you know, for multiple years. So it's like, okay, now who do you believe? Who do you trust? Who do you go with? And uh, it, I, I can't imagine that that doesn't happen once in a while with, with uh, you know, the staff meetings. And I, I would be, I would love to be a fly on the wall to see how that played out. Go, <laughs> go, go with, uh, you know, the guys that he's known forever. Does he go with the older voices in the room? I mean, you know, it comes up. So, so you talk about the chain of command there. Do you think there's a trickle down effect to, to Daniel Jones's performance because coming into his third term is a crucial year. I know he talked about feeling the pressure in the offseason and that he has to deal with that. He's pretty even keel, so he's not gonna he's not gonna show any panic or anything. But do you think it's above his head and maybe 
issues up there are causing him to have these uneven performances because he has shown flashes and but we're still not getting the performances he had from his rookie year i believe his rookie year is his best year so far uh just talk about maybe what you've seen from him and how he can improve yeah i don't think that's that's what's uh, creating the problems with daniel i think daniel's thing is is He's trying to be the hero. He's trying to load the team on his shoulders, like any good quarterback would. You know, the play, the defense is struggling. Okay, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to lower my head and try and push across this, the, you know, the goal line. And if I get hurt, I get hurt, you know, kind of like what he did in Dallas. Um, so with Daniel, there were two things I was looking for from him to, to measure his, his uh, progress. And, you know, I want to preface that by saying that the quarterback's progress is never linear. So it's not going to go up, 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 up. You're going to have blips where one week it's down, one week it's up, as long as you're not having like severe or significant drop-offs. But the two areas I was looking for for Daniel was, A, could he speed up his mental processing? I thought there were times when he just sat there um, holding that ball way too long, and that was messing up. The, the timing with, with the, the receivers. The other thing, obviously, was the turnover issue, you know, because he was just, I thought, careless with the ball as part of that recklessness, as part of that I've got to be a hero um, mentality that he was showing. I've seen improvement in both areas. Is it perfect? No, but it's trending in the right direction. So, you know, you, you add all that in and you also take into consideration decision-making which is something he can control. You know, a lot of people say, well, he, he threw a bad pass. So did he throw the right pass to the right spot? Maybe the receiver was at fault, you know? So there's, there's all kinds of different things you can look at measuring his performance. And I do think he's trending in the right direction. You know, could, could he be better? Absolutely. You know, am I 100% convinced that he's the, the franchise quarterback? No. But uh, I, I will say that I feel a little bit better about him than I did at the start of the season. Well, you ask, you look at the, around the tools that he has around him too. Of course, the Giants um, went and drafted Kadarius Tony. He's had some troubles with injuries, but what do you feel like he's starting to get the pieces around him too, as well that he needs to be successful in that Giants system? I think he has some good skill players around him. Um, you know, Kadarius Tony has just been a wonderful addition to the roster. Um, Kenny Galladay, we haven't really seen all he can do because of the injuries. Saquon Barkley, you know, I I, I I was in favor of that move when it happened, but, you know, at the time, circumstances were different. You had Eli Manning, an aging quarterback, and I think they were trying to take some of the honest off of Eli so that he didn't have to throw 600 times a season, hmm. hence bringing a running back, and, and he would take some of the honest off of Eli. But Saquon, you know, with the injuries, he got a question of his future here. Um, otherwise, you know, and then the tight ends, you know, they're not really using the tight ends as much as I thought they would. You know, Jason Garrett's always had a reputation as loving tight ends, and he was even asked that today. He says, oh, I love tight ends. Okay, well, why is it that the tight ends have combined for something like, I think, 50 pass targets mm. in the offense? I mean, it's, it's crazy. If you love tight ends so much, what exactly are you trying to do here? I mean, even last last week when we saw, you know, the Giants have the injuries at receivers. I mean, they're, they, I, I get it. The Giants initially wanted to run more 11 personnel. Well, you're losing receivers left and right. So why don't you switch more to 12 personnel and get those tight ends involved? 
Right. So just sticking, just turning this discussion to a positive turn. Uh, there's a guy that Aziz Ozolari, who I've been high on from the draft process. I, I think he's a dark horse cancer win defensive rookie of the year. A lot of questions about his knee coming in. He's a smaller size for his position, but he has five and a half sacks and 12 quarterback pressures, six tackles for loss. How has he been productive this early and so quickly? I think it's a combination of, you know, you know, fresh legs. You know, I know he had the injury, but I think that injury was, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that late in high school or early in his Mm -hmm. college career? That's correct. So, you know, that, that might have just been, you know, somebody hoping that he would drop further to to them in the draft. I don't know. But uh, that hasn't been an issue. And I think also, you know, this kid, considering he doesn't really rush with a pass rush plan, once he figures that part out, I think he's going to be even better. But, you know, the thing with all young pass rushers, and it's been a while since the Giants have had a good homegrown pass rusher. The thing is, is you want them to be good against the run. And Ojulari is getting there, but is he, you know, accomplished where you can say, oh, you know, there, there's no way they're gonna, the, the opponent's going to run against him? Nope, not quite there yet. He's getting there, but that's going to be the next step, and that's going to necessitate, obviously, you know, an offseason in, in the weight room with them, um, further study, further evaluation, and he'll get there. I, I, I feel good about this kid. I mean, he was also one of my draft crushes, if you will, um, <laughs> that, that I really wanted to see the Giants grab. And I, I was glad they got him. I said they couldn't get Micah Parsons. That was the, the pass rusher that I wanted to see them get. Yeah, I know. We all get those draft crushes. Trust me. Um, again, we're talking to Patricia Traina from GiantsCountry.com, also the Locked on Giants podcast. And Patricia, before we, we let you go, I want to ask you another question with today's matchup, or excuse me, Sunday's matchup with the Raiders and the Giants. One of the things I took away from the Chiefs game that I thought was brilliant uh, from Patrick Graham was the way he was able and the plan that he came up with to shut down Travis Kelsey using James Bradbury to cover Kelsey and really held him in check. Do you think we're going to see that Sunday, the same sort of thing implied? Because now with the Henry Rugg situation, the fact that they lost the player, uh, they're going to rely on Darren Waller. Will we see the same thing from Patrick Graham against these Raiders on Sunday? You know, you must have read Giants Country because I just put an article out about that very same topic. And Graham did say that, you know, that there will be, that there may be situations where they line up James Bradbury against Waller. Um, they were very happy with how that worked out. Um, I think against Kelsey, Bradbury uh, was targeted twice and twice he shut him out. So so uh, Kelsey was zero for two against Bradbury. But, you know, the, the, the good thing about it and, you know, the point that Graham made is that, um, you know, Kelsey's what, 6'5", 260, and Bradbury, he's, he's like 6'1", I think 215 or something like that. So you're putting size against size, and I know Kelsey's bigger, but it's not like you have a five foot nine, five foot ten cornerback who has to now go against a six foot five monster. You know, you've got a guy <laughs> right. who's a little bit bigger, a little mm-hmm. bit more physical, and it just creates a little bit better of a matchup. And it's something. And, and here's the other thing. And Evan Ingram was, was. It's interesting. Evan Ingram was asked about this as well, and he made a great point. I thought cornerbacks have speed, you know, because they've got to keep up with wide receivers who are, you know, the fastest players on offense. So now you're putting them against a tight end who can, you know, burst through the seam and, and, you know, run guys over and stuff like that. Now you've got somebody 
who can keep up as opposed to maybe putting a slower linebacker or maybe, you know, like a strong safety who doesn't have the coverage range that, that a cornerback would have. So I, I thought it was a brilliant, you know, move by Patrick Graham. You know, he's very creative. He's very innovative. Um, he said he's done it before or he's seen it done before. And, you know, it was I thought it was just a timely move on his part. So speaking of that defense, and we, we talked about a couple of names here, James Bradbury, uh, Zijo Jalari, who's, who's my, our draft crush, I should say, Leonard Williams, uh, Ryan Logan is still leading that secondary. Why has the defense reg- regressed as far as allowing points? I know last year they were top 10 scoring defense, but they still have these key players playing at a, at a pretty solid level. So do you think that's part of the offense not scoring points and putting a lot of pressure on the defense? The defense has to stay on the field a lot longer. What's going on with that defense statistically? Why are they allowing so much more points than last year? I, if I had to guess, I would say the pass rush has been missing. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, you know, Leonard Williams has been getting a little bit of a pressure. Ojulari's been getting pressure. But who else on that defense has been getting pressure that you can speak of? Not a lot of guys. And it's kind of interesting because they upgraded the talent. You know, but last year, you know, they had Tyler Spackle. They had Marcus Golden. Um, and those guys produced pressure. You know, not not the greatest amount of pressure, but they were getting a lot more pressure than I think the current group is getting now. So I think that's part of the problem because quarterbacks just have all day to throw the ball. Um, and, and, you know, you got to look at the back end, too. I think early on, the back end of the defense wasn't holding its coverage. So, uh, you know, when you combine that with the, with the front four, the front five not getting home, now, you know, you give any quarterback three seconds or four seconds to throw the ball, and guess what? They're going to burn you. So um, <laughs> I think that was part of the problem. Um, you know, and, th- and then, you know, they have guys that, uh, I don't know, that I thought the return of Lorenzo Carter and uh, O'Shane Zimenez from, from uh, their injuries last year, their season-ending injuries, I thought that would help. And those two guys just haven't looked like they've gotten on track since they come back and you know Carter right now is dealing with a I think it's an ankle injury so he's missed one game he might miss the second one this some this Sunday so just I think that's still a problem for them that pass rush isn't fixed yet and if you give a quarterback all kinds of time he's going to eventually find a way to burn you especially you know when you start running that hurry up offense and you keep a certain defensive look on the field because you're, you're running that hurry up offense towards the end of like the two minute morning and the so forth. So I think that's all factoring in. So before we let you out of here, we have one minute left. What do you see big picture for the future of the Giants? Do is Dave Gettleman, Joe Judge, Jason Garrett, all, all those guys back next year from what you see right now? I I think Joe Judge will be back. Um I I think as far as the others go, it kind of depends on how the rest of the season plays out. The Giants, you know, they they're right now they're in the toughest part of their schedule. Then I think the schedule lightens up a little bit. So if they show progress, maybe we don't see a wholesale change. But but right now, I would say this. I would say there's a possibility. Maybe there's a, there are a couple of tweaks made to the coaching staff, especially you know if, if the offense continues to struggle. Dave Gettleman, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that he is safe um again i know injuries are not his fault right he can't plan for that but 
right. the offensive line, you know, I, I think he kind of overvalued what he had on the offensive line. Um, so I could see maybe a shape up there because, uh, you know, I found it interesting. And I think, I, I forget who made this point, but the Giants didn't make any trades at the trade deadline for like the first mm-hmm. time in Dave Gettleman's tenure. Hmm. And um, I forget who said this, but somebody somebody said or wrote that the reason why often, the reason why that happens is because you're trying to save jobs. You don't want to start giving away players because you're trying to keep what you have and save jobs. So uh, that I makes just sense. found that interesting. Yeah, no doubt and, about uh, it. You know, yeah, I found that interesting because, you know, they apparently they had, you know, interest from other teams in Gary Slate, and I know Evan Ingram drew interest. But they didn't want to part with those guys. Now, maybe part of that has to do with the injuries, but, um, you know, why not continue to build the action? <laughs> That's right. Since you know you're not going to the playoffs this year. That's right. Well, Patricia Trena, of course, GiantsCountry.com. You can also check her out on Twitter at Patricia underscore Trena, T-R-A-I-N-A. Thank you so much for your time tonight. We appreciate you giving us the deep dive on the Giants. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. All right there, Mo, we got the Giants. What uh, We're running out of time here as we come to the end of the show. Giants, Raiders, Sunday, what do you see? Yeah, 2317, Raiders plot a slugfest, as, as much as Mostradamus says. <laughs> slugfest 2021. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm really um, going to be focused to see how the Raiders come out, how their focus is after the tough week. But I like the Raiders, too. I like them a little more. I think you're right about a slugfest. I think the Raiders' offense, though, is going to put up points against a good defense. Uh, but I think they're going to be on the field too much because of that Giants offense. All right. Well, for Mo Moten, I am Scott Branson. This has been Silver and black tonight only here on the mightier 1090 we will be back with you right here raider nation hopefully talking about a victory for mo i am scott this has been silver and black tonight we'll talk to you next week thank you for joining us please catch silver and black tonight every friday at 6 p.m on the mightier 1090 a.m socal sports talk